Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Mosher Media Podcast. And it is great to be back. And all of us, no matter where you are, if you own a business, if you work for a business, if you've stayed at home, we've all been through a lot. So today we're not going to talk about how great it is to be back and all that we've been through because we have all been through this. So this is the first podcast I've done since the pandemic shut down our operations and our offices and forced us all to figure out how to reinvent our businesses overnight. So we've all been through this. So let's look forward. Let's not dwell on what we've been through. Let's talk about what we can do to move forward. And today, as the first podcast since we've all come back, since there are true signs of returning, let's talk about what's in the best interest of our customers. Think about stakeholders in our business. The stakeholders, of course, are the employees, uh, the shareholders, the owners, obviously, the customers. And let's think of a new one that maybe isn't mentioned a whole lot in traditional discussions about business and customers and stakeholders. Let's talk about our fan base. Today, we have a fan base that doesn't fit into any of these other categories. We have a fan base on our Facebook page. We might have a fan base of folks listening to this podcast right now who might never do business with Mosier Media, might not ever call us. But we still need to take this group into consideration because they have a great deal of influence on our brand, even though they are not going to work for us. They're not going to own a portion of the company, and they may never call us to buy our products or services, but they are still a stakeholder because they are supporting our brands on social media or out in the world. They are our fan base. And if we're going to talk about stakeholders, let's acknowledge our fan base and how important they are to the brand and to the business. I would like to talk, as I frequently do, about one of my favorite companies, General Motors. And I think it goes back to, as a child, my parents owned a lot of GM cars. And if you grow up in the 70s and the 80s, GM was the dominant brand. The number one selling car in 1978 was probably the Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme or some car like that. And so as we use GM as the study, as the look back, it, I might sound at times critical of the company, but I love the company. And today, GM is strong. I'm in the market for a pickup truck. I've owned an F-150, loved my F-150. I've owned a uh, Dodge Ram 1500, had the Hemi, loved the Dodge pickup truck. So my next pickup truck is going to be a Silverado. And I would buy a Silverado in a second. I might even consider the GMC equivalent. But the point being is that I like GM. I believe it's a good company. And I believe they're building some of the best cars that they have ever built in their 100-plus year history. But in the 80s, let's be honest, GM was struggling, certainly because of Honda and Toyota and Mazda and Nissan. The Japanese automakers coming on very strong in the United States with really great products. And their timing was phenomenal in terms of producing reliable, 
small cars that were fuel efficient that appealed to an, an entirely new group of buyers. Young people were buying up Hondas and Toyotas. Of course, my grandparents at that time were still buying very large Oldsmobiles. But there was a whole group of new buyers, and they were concerned about the cost of fuel, and they were concerned about reliability, and they were perhaps concerned about not being their parents. So that could have played a role. But what that group discovered is that these cars were not only inexpensive and fuel efficient, but they were extremely reliable. They had a quality about them. They were well-built. And General Motors was struggling to compete. And at some level, so was Ford and certainly Chrysler. But in focusing on GM, it's a fascinating study because they decided, rather than fix some of the quality issues they had or some of the issues they had at the factories, which if you read uh, the research and the stories about what happened to GM in the 80s, these factories became kingdoms. Kingdoms ran by the king, the plant manager, and there was an issue at these factories with company culture. And the Japanese might have had a better way to run factories, and that played a huge role in the quality of the final product. And this is not a dig on the American worker. The problem in these factories is how the American worker was managed, how the structure of the plants were set up. I'm not an expert in HR or auto manufacturing, but I absorb all of the studies that were written about these factories that GM was running. And the factories became these kingdoms, and General Motors corporate could come to the factory and they could review the processes. And HR could come in and study what was happening with employees and managers, but they had very little influence because the plant manager ran the show. So what did GM do? In 1985, the CEO then of, of GM, Roger Smith, announced a new nameplate, Saturn, in January of 1985. Their idea was, don't fix what's broken here. Let's just start another brand, a fighter brand, to fight off the Hondas, Toyotas, and Nissans, and Mazdas, to fight off the Japanese automakers coming into the United States and doing very well with a great product. In hindsight, it might have been better to take the $5 billion that GM spent building Saturn between 1985 and 1990 and use that money instead to fix what was happening perhaps at the Lordstown plant in near Youngstown, Ohio, which is only about 30 miles away from where I'm recording this podcast. I know people that retired from GM in that era and worked at Lordstown and worked at Packard and Delphi and all the contractors and vendors to GM. These are good American workers dedicated their life to building of components and electronics and building the Chevy Cavalier and the Cobalt and the Cruze and all these cars, everything that, that, that came out of Lordstown. But what if GM had taken that $5 billion and decided rather than just start a new brand, start over, fix what they already had, 
So in today's podcast, let's revisit our topic, which is acting in the best interest of the customer and the shareholders, the stakeholders, we call them. And our stakeholders include our employees and our customers and the shareholders. And most important here in this discussion, the fan base, those who talk about our brand who may never call us or buy from us. They're just supporters on social media. They're our friends and our family and people who like our pictures on Facebook and Instagram and share things on our YouTube channel. That's our fan base. That's a very important part of our group of stakeholders. So getting back to what GM did, in addition to starting Saturn, and a lot of the domestic automakers did this, is they quietly secretly in a way behind the scenes and i say that meaning the customers probably didn't know this was happening they pressed their suppliers and their vendors to reduce cost to increase profitability because what they were doing at that time not acting in the best interest of the customer but acting in the best interest of the shareholders they needed to return profitability to their shareholders. They needed to beat Wall Street's expectations. They needed to have their stock price remain strong or even go up. And they struggled to do this because they were losing market share to the Japanese automakers. So what if they had decided to act in the best interest of the customer at that time instead of spending $5 billion to start a new brand? What would that have looked like? It's about the culture of the company. It's about getting buy-in from everybody that works for you to move towards the same goal. And that goal needs to be an incredible product. So the challenge they faced in cutting costs to return to profitability and provide a return to shareholders, putting the shareholders at number one, the problem they faced is a reduction in quality of the final product. Because what GM and certainly Chrysler and Ford were probably all doing it, we're going to their vendors and their suppliers and saying, you have to take these brake pads or these discs or these components over here. You're making the alternator. Okay, that alternator needs to be at a 20% less cost this year than it was last year. So what are the suppliers and vendors going to do to remove cost? They're going to need to sell more alternators, more batteries, more brake pads, tires, all the components that go into making the car that GM wasn't building, they were outsourcing. So the way to do that, well, one big way to do that is to increase the number of parts coming out of your factory and perhaps even decreasing the number of parts that you're inspecting at the end of the assembly line. You are taking money out of quality control. And when that happens, Brake pads that don't quite meet the manufacturing specs can slip through. An alternator that isn't quite perfect, because it hasn't been tested, no one would know, makes it into a new Cavalier. Wiring harnesses, tires, anything that goes into a car 
that the auto manufacturer is buying and then having shipped to the factory uh, uh, just in time for manufacturing. That was their, their the idea. The parts come in just as they're needed. So things are moving quickly. And when you start working behind the scenes to take cost out, one way of looking at that might be it's called it's called shortcutting. Cutting corners. And so ultimately this victory that the Japanese were having selling these Hondas and Toyotas that were viewed as very reliable, that illusion in the marketplace, that perception from buyers was being supported in fact because a lot of cars being made by General Motors in the 80s were not quality vehicles and it was because they were cost cutting. So now folks that are making the argument to buy a Honda or a Toyota are supported because their neighbors that bought a brand new Chevy Lumina would have a problem at 30,000 miles and the Honda Accord would keep going no problem. How can we think about all of this in terms of our business? What can we do at our small business that puts into practice what we learn from the failure of billion dollar corporations? A company, General Motors, at one point in the 50s, our country's largest employer. Today, our country's largest employer is probably Walmart or Amazon. Now, that's a different discussion for a different day. What we want to do is think about how can we act in the best interest of the customer when nobody's looking. Were any of the customers coming into the showroom at the Chevrolet dealership in the 80s and questioning what parts went into the car and what the quality standards were. Well, they just liked the Camaro. They bought the, the, the Lumina. It was a, was a good-looking car. They liked their pickup trucks. It's certainly in the 80s, there was a number of people that simply felt you bought American. Yeah, there was such brand loyalty at that time that those customers might not have even questioned. There were certainly folks... The, this generation still exists, and these folks are still out there, and I support them and their beliefs. You buy American, absolutely. There's nothing wrong with Chevrolet having brand loyalty. But how can we think all of these things through in terms of our business? How do we act in the best interest of the customer? What it comes down to is the work that goes into putting quality control into place. The work that goes into building a culture, even if you have a four-person shop, if you're a web design firm or a photography studio, a video production company, how do you build a culture where when nobody's watching, no one's looking, your video editor, your graphic designer is going to not skip a step Put a little extra effort into something. Perhaps fix something that doesn't look quite right before the customer sees it. How do you build a culture at your operation where everyone is acting in the best interest of the customer? And I'm going to offer my suggestion as to how this could happen. Make the customer number one on the list of stakeholders and make the shareholder 
the owner last. Where the fan base, where the employees fit in on your list is up to you, probably set by the corporate culture. And if you're a small business, you don't have corporate culture, you have a culture. Some people start a small business to avoid anything that says corporate. Many of us own and operate a small business because we felt like that was getting away with something. Or, as they say, not having to have a real job where you go into the large corporation and you run someone else's business. But that's a perhaps a separate topic for another day. My suggestion is that you look at your list of stakeholders. And again, we have employees, shareholders, customers, and my favorite now, the fan base. And you arrange them so that the customer is absolutely on top and everyone else knows it. Your employees know that this is your position as the owner. That as the owner, you and your needs are to be last. And the customer and their needs are to be first. And you see a lot of charts when it comes to stakeholders where everyone is represented equally. But in setting up this culture in your small shop, your creative team, you set up this culture so that everyone knows that it's okay to just admit out loud that the needs of the owner, the needs of the business to be profitable are last on the list and that the quality of the product you're putting out is paramount. And the customers will respond to this. And certainly the fan base will respond because the fan base will have an opportunity to see your product, engage with your product, and they're doing this on social media and on YouTube or any place where your product or service might have changed their environment. They might not have paid for the carpet cleaning that your company provided, but they were a guest in somebody's house and they said, wow, these carpets are really clean. That's the fan base. They're not a customer. They're a guest in someone else's home, but they went in and said, wow, those carpets are clean. Well, who did that? Well, the XYZ carpet cleaning company down the street did it. Well, now you've got a fan and you have that fan because you did a great job cleaning the carpets as a, the carpet cleaning company. But when we produce videos, we produce TV commercials. We're going to have a fan base of people who see this work, see this product that we're putting out and have an opinion about it. And they might go on social media and write about it. They might like our videos on our Facebook page. They might see a picture of our camera crews out in the field and comment on it and say, oh, wow, you're shooting a commercial for that restaurant. I love that restaurant. That's your fan base. I had a Cavalier when I graduated high school. And it was a, it was a 1990. It was a four-door. The back seats folded down so I could fit all kinds of video gear in there. I was, you know, 18 years old. I was going to embark on my career in video production. I was going to go shoot weddings and events and become a professional videographer. And... So I had this Cavalier, and the back seats folded down. I could fit all these tripods and all the lights and cameras and all this gear in this, in this old car. I was very fortunate to have this, this car. It was a graduation gift, and I look back at how what a spoiled kid I was. I got a Cavalier. It's a graduation gift. How blessed I am. 
Uh, but that's a, another podcast for another day. So I graduated high school in 1992. I got a two-year-old car with 30,000 miles on it. I drove that Cavalier to about 150,000 miles, and it had all kinds of little quirks and problems. But I loved my Cavalier, and I liked driving a Chevy. And in 1992, Saturn had just come out. It was kind of a big deal. They had all the feel-good TV commercials. And I had considered a Toyota or Honda when the Cavalier needed replaced. But I really loved the Saturn Sports Coupe, and I bought one. And I bought it with my own money. Well, I bought it with Bank One's money, actually. I first car where I had a car loan. So I bought a 1991 Saturn, and I bought it used in 1994. So I bought a three-year-old car, probably 30,000, 40,000 miles on it. It was $11,500, but it had a sunroof and pop-up headlights, and it had, a, it was a five-speed, so it was a, a manual. It was just a fun car to drive. Loved it. But when you're 20, 21, and cruising around, in a car that's uh, slightly beyond probably what you can afford, and you're paying more in auto insurance premiums than you are in car payment, uh, it doesn't take long before trouble ensues. And so when I wrecked that car, uh, I decided that I wasn't going to have a car that was fancy or beyond what I could afford or, you know. I went and picked up a used Chevy Corsica. And this used Chevy Corsa, let's say I bought this in 96, and let's say it was a 93. So it was a couple years old. By the way, a great strategy to buy a car that's just three years old. This is something I've been doing for my entire life. This is the way to go. But uh, at the time, I just bought three-year-old cars because that's what I could afford. So I picked up an old uh, or a three-year-old Chevy Corsica. And this car, probably built in, it was probably a 94 Let's say this is 96. So maybe it's a 93 or 94, three-year-old car. This car had so many problems. This was probably built in the height of GM's quality problem era. The 94, 95, 96 Chevy Corsica was probably an example of one of the worst cars from a there's a, there's a reason why here in 2021, there aren't any on the road. You couldn't find a, a Chevy Beretta or a Chevy Corsica if you wanted to. Could you find an Accord or a, or a Toyota Corolla from that era? Probably. Again, not to dig on GM, but the reasons behind the quality issues from that era and GM's decision to take quality out, to cut corners... Ultimately, if you look at where they ended up in bankruptcy, of course, GM has, has paid their way out of bankruptcy and uh, has paid back the government for the loans they took in the 2008 uh, bailout era. And again, GM is probably the, as strong as they've ever been with the, with the greatest products uh, they've ever been making uh, at this time. But when you look back at that old Corsica, at that time, I traded it in for a Honda Civic. I drove that car, let's say, two years, probably from 96 to 98, and it just was plagued with problems. And I traded it in at the end of 1997 for the first new car I ever bought in my life. I bought a 98 Honda Civic. And it was similar to the Saturn. It was a two-door. It was a manual speed. It was black. It had the sunroof. Uh, you know, it was really cool. And so at this point in my life, I'm, I'm 24 years old. 
and I'm driving a brand new car. And at that point, after driving it for about three years, I put 100,000 miles on that car in three years without one problem. And I was so far outside of the warranty on this car when I had my first glitch with it. And I went over to what was then Rick Case Honda, Akron, Ohio, near the Chapel Hill Mall. The mall that uh, that I grew up, uh, you know, we won't even talk about the Chapel Hill Mall. It's closing this week. All the malls that uh, we grew up in are now closing. But anyway, the Honda dealer was across the street from the mall. And I go over to them. I had been driving the car for two and a half years or so. I had 100,000 miles on it. And I go to the service department and I say, hey, this Civic has a problem where the windshield wipers come on randomly. And they'll do it in the middle of the day, on a sunny day, they'll just come on. And it's annoying because they won't turn off. So now I'm driving down the road in broad daylight on a sunny afternoon, and the windshield wipers are on. And they all come out, and they're looking at this car. And, of course, when I'm at the service department, the windshield wipers are off. And I cannot get the windshield wipers to turn on by themselves and stay on. I can't recreate the problem in the service department. That's always the way it works. So they keep the car for a few days. And this Honda dealer, they gave me another car to drive. And I mean, they treat me like gold. I'm like 26 at this point. And they're treating me like gold. I don't deserve this kind of treatment. I'm a, I'm a, a punk kid, right? But they give me another car to drive. And uh, maybe an Accord, I think it was. And I just love these Hondas. I'm a huge Honda fan now. I've been converted by this Honda Civic to a Honda fan. And the service manager calls me, and a couple days later, he says, Dan, uh, so we found the problem. It's a relay, whatever a relay is. There's a relay in the steering column near the windshield wiper switch, and that relay is broken. And it's about an $800 repair. The part is $50, but the service technician at the Rick Case Honda has to take apart the steering column to get to it. It's $800 because it's like $700 in labor. I'm in, I'm a 26, you know, I'm still paying more in car insurance monthly payments than I am in the actual car payment. You know, let's say that, that era, the math works out to where when you're 26 and you have a couple speeding tickets, you're paying progressive insurance, uh, $250 a month and you're paying 210 for on your car loan or something like that. So at that point in my life, $800 to repair the car, well, that, I'm like, oh, that reminds me of the Corsica. Every other month I was spending $800 to fix that Corsica to the point where it wasn't worth it. They'd nickel and dime you. So I thought, well, boy, you know, maybe all cars are the same. They're all mechanical. They all break down. There's a cost to driving a car. You can't dodge it by buying a Japanese car over an American car. Every car is going to have a problem. Every car has maintenance costs. The service manager called me back a day later. He said, Dan, we called Honda corporate. They're in disbelief that the car has this problem. They are covering the cost of the repair. I about fell over. I had somehow dodged an $800 repair bill because the service manager at the Rick Case Honda went to bat for me, called corporate and said, hey, we sold a Civic to this kid a couple of years ago. Now he's come back. He's 
you know, it's a it's a two and a half year old car. He's got a hundred thousand miles on it, but that doesn't affect the operation of the windshield wipers. And Honda Corporate decided to pay for that repair. Well outside of a three year thirty six thousand mile warranty. Think about a three year thirty six thousand mile warranty. It's whichever happens first. So the car was only two and a half years old, let's say, but at 100,000 miles, I was a little outside of the warranty contract agreement, and Honda agreed to pay for the repair because they were in disbelief that their product had failed. And I have to tell you, that is acting in the best interest of the customer. As I'm recording this here in our podcast studio here in Akron, Ohio, I am 46, So that was 20 years ago. Think about how many cars I have purchased between age 26 and age 46. Dozens. I I go through cars a lot. I frequently have more than one car at a time. I always like having an extra car for work. Uh, We have, you know, vans. Speaking of Ford, we have transit vans. Those transit vans are phenomenal. Again, GM and Ford uh, building the best cars they've ever built. Quality is, is outstanding. That Honda dealer and Honda corporate acted in the best interest of the customer, and I remember that to this day, and I can't even list how many Hondas and Acuras I have purchased since then because of that. I was already a fan. I was already a satisfied customer, and they locked me in for life as a believer because of acting in the best interest of the customer. And I've strayed. I had an F-150, like I said. Loved it. I had a 2012 F-150. It was a two-year lease. Drove it for two years, turned it in, loved it. Would do that again in a second. The Dodge Ram with the Hemi, that's, that, was, that was quite a truck. And would I buy a Silverado right now? Absolutely. But I'm a huge Honda fan. So what can we take from our life experiences in seeing how other brands and companies operate. We can summarize by remembering to act in the best interest of the customer that a short-term cost-cutting measure has immediate benefits in terms of the bottom line. But in terms of long-term name and brand building and reputation building, it is absolutely destructive. So all of us who own a business, all of us who work for a small business with direct interaction with a customer, and most importantly, direct interaction with the process behind the scenes. We need to act in the best interest of the customer, especially when no one is watching and when you have the opportunity to cut corners, cut costs, don't do it. The short-term gain, you get out 10 minutes early. You save a few dollars in terms of what that can do to burn your brand long term. What we need to do is consider that it's not cost savings. That the extra cost that comes with an additional five or ten minutes working on a project, the extra cost involved in perhaps buying additional equipment so that where when you're on the job on the on the job site or you're at a customer's location you have two parts one you need and one is a backup especially in the drone business 
If you're in the business of flying one of these drones for clients and you're a FAA certified and you're there on the job site and your drone is broken and you've driven two hours to get to the place where you need to do some aerial photography, what, did it, what, what would it cost to have an extra drone? That's a cost. But what I'm going to suggest is that these preventative measures, the extra cost of quality control, the cost of getting your whole crew together to discuss what kind of culture you want to have in your business and listen to your employees, the cost of all those discussions, it's not a cost. It's an investment in your brand. And if we can somehow figure out a way to assign some number to what goes into, financially speaking, acting in the best interest of the customer and add all that up over the course of the year, could you make the argument that that's not a cost, that's an investment in our brand? It's an investment in the quality of the product. And then your customers and your fan base will take care of employees, and finally, the shareholder or shareholders. So when nobody's looking, act in the best interest of the customer and let the customers let spread the word and let the fan base like everything on Facebook, even though they're never going to be a customer, elevate that fan base higher than, believe it or not, the employees and most importantly, the shareholder. And when I say most importantly, that I mean the shareholder should be last on this list. Profitability should be last in the process of acting in the best interest of the customer. Toss profitability out the window. Think about what GM could have done with the $5 billion they spent building Saturn between 1985 and 1990. They were not acting in the best interest of the customer. They were acting in the best interest of the shareholders. And frankly, if you really get into it and read the studies... They were trying to work around the United Auto Workers. They were placing the shareholders on a pedestal. They were elevating the shareholders to the highest level possible. When instead they could have taken that $5 billion and simply invested it in their brand. And they could have taken that $5 billion and had a place to work from to be able to tell their vendors and suppliers, don't cut costs on the brake pads and the alternators that you're selling us. Give us the best product you can so that we can win on quality. And that is not a cost. That's an investment. So if you're listening to this and you are an employee of one of our operations, then what the takeaway would be is you have my approval to act in the best interest of the customer. You're empowered to make decisions that cost the company money. If you can make the argument you did so because it improved the quality of the product. And what we need to do is communicate that and make that a part of our culture at every operation, at all the operations that I manage or own, I want this to be the culture of the company. It's great to be back. I love doing a podcast. Certainly over the past year, 
uh, there's been a lot of distractors. There have been a lot of other things that we need to take care of. And coming into the office, at times it didn't seem safe. It didn't seem like the right thing to do. So there's a lot of things that took precedent over recording the podcast. But I certainly appreciate your listening. You are our fan base. And even if you never call me at 330-376-3500, or even if you never email me, dan at mosiermedia.com, you're still a part of our fan base because you've listened today, and I so appreciate you. We are going to act in the best interest of our customers, and that includes acting in the best interest of our fan base. Certainly, as a part of being our fan base, you can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Mosier Media, and of course, at Instagram, at Mosier Media, also on YouTube, youtube.com slash Mosier Media. Thank you so much for listening, and let's all go out and act in the best interest of the customer.